Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad to have you this morning. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Aaron was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And the summer is an especially great time to get connected to a small group. The kind of rhythms and, and life of small group is really relational and really low-key in the summer. And so if you're looking to build relationships, get to know people, we'd love to have you check one of those out. And so talk to one of the people that you saw on the slides or anybody else who looks like they know where the bathrooms are around here and they're probably involved in a small group and we'd love to help you get plugged in. So uh, excited as well. I'd love to invite you into our new series. We're walking through this spring and summer uh, called Jesus on Every Page. When, in the course of our couple of months here, what we're going to be doing is taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages and some you probably heard before, some you may not have. And what we're going to be doing is highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately about teaching us what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing. They're not ultimately about showing us examples of who we should be like or who we shouldn't be like. But instead, they're all actually meant to point us to the person and the work of Jesus. And the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is first and foremost about Jesus and the gospel, that's not an idea I came up with. That's not something some theologian or great pastor came up with. That, that idea comes from Jesus himself. We saw in John chapter 5 that he tells the religious leaders that the life that they are looking for, that sense of fulfillment and peace and joy, that thing that they're looking for by studying the Old Testament scriptures, it can only be found if they'll see that all of those passages point to him. We saw later in Luke 24, after his resurrection, how beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explains to his disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the way Jesus reads the Old Testament is that it's about him. And so that's the way we want to look at it. But just to be clear, even though our series is called Jesus on Every Page, right? it's not like Jesus' name is actually hidden on every page. right? This is not a Nicolas Cage uh, you know, national treasure type situation where there's a hidden map to the gospel in invisible ink on the pages or something. Um, instead, like Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her incredible book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, she says it this way, the Bible is a story, at the center of that story is Jesus. Every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together and reveals the beautiful picture of the gospel. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to see Jesus in the pages of the story in Genesis about a guy named Joseph. And uh, I would love to spend, and we will spend at some point in the future, uh, time t- studying the 10 chapters that Genesis covers on Joseph's life. But we don't have time to do that this morning. And so instead, what I want to just do this morning is we're going to actually take a look at the very end of Joseph's story, the last little bit, because what I think it does more than anything else is it kind of sums up for us the main point of Joseph's whole story throughout, throughout Genesis and helps us to see the point that his story reveals. But before we get to the end of the story, it's probably helpful to just do a brief recap. Maybe it's been a while since you heard Joseph's story, or maybe you're new to the Bible and you're not really sure who Joseph is in the first place. But the Bible's account of Joseph's life, it begins in, in Genesis 37, where we meet this 17-year-old cocky kid who, who's, who's, uh, who's kind of pushed his brother's buttons so much to the point that they're about to murder him. And instead of murdering their brother, uh, they just instead, let's just sell him off into slavery and fake his death. That'll be better for everyone, right? Uh, just a minor difference. Everything's fine, right? 
And uh, so Joseph is sold off into slavery by his brothers. And the story progresses, and Joseph finds himself in Egypt and under the household of a guy named Potiphar, where he excels and he serves, and he becomes the supervisor of Potiphar's household. And so just as things seem like they're on the up and up for Joseph, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He says no, and so she accuses him of, of rape, and he gets thrown into prison. And he's stuck there for a number of years. And while he's there, he interprets the, gene, the dreams of two of his fellow prisoners by God's power. And, and so both interpretations proved to be true, and one of the men's released back to service to the Pharaoh. And eventually, in the course of the time, this man recommends uh, Joseph's services to the Pharaoh. And so Joseph comes to interpret one of the king's dreams, and he tells the, the king, the Pharaoh, that it's a vision from God that's predicting seven years of bountiful harvest followed by seven years of famine in Egypt, and he advises the king to begin preparing for it. And so in response, uh, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he, he makes Joseph second in command. He puts him in charge of everything going on in the kingdom, and, and the famine comes just as God revealed to Joseph it would, and it's so severe that it affects not just Egypt, but it affects this giant surrounding area. In fact, Joseph's hometown in Canaan, far north of Egypt. And so eventually his brothers and his family, they hear that there might be food in Egypt. And so they start to head down to Egypt to see if they might be able to buy some. And and while they're there, they they meet their long-lost brother, but they don't recognize him. In the climax of the whole story, Jesus reveals his identity to his brothers. And instead of crushing them and punishing them as his power would allow him to do, instead he forgives them and he blesses them lavishly. And he sends them back to Canaan to go get their father and to bring their whole families and all their belongings down to Egypt where he gives them the best of everything, the best land, the best resources, the best provisions. And, and so it's this incredible story of, of forgiveness and reconciliation that we see happening in Joseph's life with his brothers others. But the story of Joseph, it has all these markings of just like a great story, right? In fact, it's, it's a story, versions of Joseph's story has been told by Broadway singers and singing vegetables alike, right? All kinds of stories have been told about Joseph. It's this kind of classic coming-of-age story. It's filled with these overcoming obstacles like uh, rejection and sibling rivalry and greed and injustice and even success itself. But, but what you have to see, and what I want to show you this morning is that Joseph's story is about so much more than that. In fact, Joseph is not actually the main character in his own story. It's not actually about him. You see, Joseph's story is really ultimately actually about God. And don't get me wrong, there's lots we can learn from Joseph and his life, but the point is not him. See, the story's not about Joseph, it's about God. And throughout the story, through all the pain and all the joy and all the hurt and all the suffering and all the reconciliation, what's happening is that Joseph is coming to know the truth about God. And knowing God is the thing that transforms Joseph's life. What we're going to see this morning at the end of his life is that that cocky young kid who used his father's favoritism to his own advantage and drove his brothers to the brink of murder, that kid is gone. And in his place, there's a man whose actions reveal that he has become someone altogether new. And what's so important that you see is that it's not, Joseph's, it's not just hard things that he endured that changed him. It's that he met the living God and was transformed by him in the midst of all that stuff. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning and to show you Jesus in the pages of Joseph's story. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll we'll dive in together. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for you. 
And thanks that all of the stories are always about you. We pray this morning as we take a look at Joseph that you might help us to see you in the pages of his story. They might help us to see that uh, he's not the end, but that he points us to you. And so God, by your grace, would you empower the teaching of your word so that you might be the center of it, that we might see you as beautiful and compelling, that we might see you as the true and better Joseph that we need and long for. And so I can't make that happen, but you can, God. And so I pray that you would, for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to pick up Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50, just a few verses here. And what you need to understand, again, is that this is at the very end of the story. In fact, uh, this takes place 17 years after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and his family had moved all down to Egypt. And so there's this gap of time here, and this is at the end. And Joseph's dad, uh, Jacob, has just died, right? And so that's, that's the context at the very end of the story here. We pick it up this way. Verse 15 it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. By the way, he didn't leave these instructions. This is a lie, right? If you read the story, you'll find he did, this is not from them. This is what you are to say to Joseph. Ask, I ask you to forgive uh, your your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? For you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to a to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, like I said in the beginning, Joseph's story isn't really about Joseph. It's really actually about God. And so as we study Joseph's interaction with his brothers here, what I want to show you is three ways that knowing God has transformed Joseph's life. Three ways that that knowing God's transformed him. The first is that we see is that Joseph chooses forgiveness instead of bitterness. He chooses forgiveness instead of bitterness, right? 17 years before our passage takes place, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and he's forgiven them. But we learn in chapter 50 that there's this incredible story that we thought ended with forgiveness and reconciliation, that that story's not actually over yet. It's not really done See, and Joseph's dad has just died, and his brothers are worried, and and although the past 17 years of Joseph's endless blessings for his brothers, that that should have proven to them that they have no reason to fear him, says the brothers are incredibly worried. They're full of fear. Verse 15 says they're worried. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? Right? They think to themselves, maybe Joseph was just like showing us favor like as a favor to dad. He just like really loved dad, and so he just like really didn't want to just really didn't want to, to, to ruin that relationship. And so he just he just treated us well because of our dad. Now that now that now that Jacob's gone, maybe Joseph's gonna take his vengeance on us for what we did to him as a boy. And they're so afraid of Joseph that they don't even go to him face to face. Instead, the passage says they send him a message, right? And their strategy involves them, like I said earlier, in fresh sin because they're lying about what their father has said in the hopes that maybe if we, maybe if we say that dad wanted you to forgive us, then maybe that'll like help him to like really choose to forgive us. And 
I'm going to pull on kind of Joseph's heartstrings. But when Joseph receives their message in verse 17, right, just tells us that he weeps. And it's not because for the very first time in all of their years, his brothers have acknowledged their sin against him and asked him for some semblance of forgiveness, which, by the way, they have still never done. But it's instead, his tears are because their message and the way it was sent, what it reveals is that they do not believe that they've been forgiven. They don't believe it. You can only imagine what Joseph is thinking, right? What more could I have done? What more could I have done to show you that I've forgiven you? Don't they remember all the grace they were shown that day that I revealed myself to them in the courts of the, of the Pharaoh, how I hugged them and embraced them and cried with them when it was in my power to crush them? I blessed them instead when I could have made them my slaves. I, re- I bought them back as family and gave them the best of everything. All these years in Egypt, I've given them the best of everything that I have, and yet they still don't think I'm their forgiven. See, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers, it is this incredibly deep and profound thing. It wasn't just a dismissal of his brother's sin against him. It wasn't just a a sweeping under the rug. It wasn't just forgetting the past. In verse 20, he tells them specifically, listen, I know that you intended evil for me. Right, that, that thing when you sold me into slavery, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't just a bad choice. Like that was evil intentions. I get it. I'm not naive. You see, cheap forgiveness, it, it fails to acknowledge the wrongs that have been done. But Joseph's forgiveness for his brothers is not cheap. It's not ignorant. It's not naive. We don't ever get insight into exactly how Joseph comes to forgive his brothers. But one pastor puts it this way, forgiveness is both a decision and a process. So the road to forgiveness is not denial, it's not enabling, it's not forgetting the offense, nor is it always a response to an apology, which again, Joseph's brothers never offered. Instead, forgiveness comes when we confess our bitterness, we remove the person's control over our emotions, we forsake revenge and leave justice to God. We know we have been truly forgiven when we want the best for someone who has sinned against us. And I don't know about you, but it would be incredibly hard for me not to harbor bitterness against brothers who sold me into slavery. And yet from the very first time Joseph sees them in Egypt, from the very first moment, he is always out to bless them. He's always seeking to bless them. See, you don't bless someone you harbor bitterness against. The only people you're free to bless are those that you have already forgiven. You see, long before his brothers came to Egypt looking for food, long before he had power and authority over them, See, Joseph had chosen forgiveness instead of bitterness. And so he weeps for his brothers, and his tears aren't happy tears. Their tears are full of hurt and pain, but they're also these deeply compassionate ones. See, he's weeping for his brothers who, although they're forgiven, they still live in fear and under the burden of their sin. And although they are loved as family, they see themselves as his slaves. And although they have been blessed, they can't enjoy their blessing because of guilt and shame. And Joseph's tears are full of compassion for his brothers. But because 
It's not just that he has forgiven them. It's that he wants them to know and to live in the forgiveness that he's given them. Seeing his tears, they point us to the second way that knowing God has changed him. See, Joseph, he doesn't just choose forgiveness instead of bitterness. He chooses compassion instead of judgment. How stinging those, his brother's message must have been to Joseph. Right? Not only did it reveal that they didn't believe that they'd been forgiven, more than that, it reveals that their plea for forgiveness, the very first time they ever even ask for any form of forgiveness, is not because they are truly sorry, not because they have a love for their brother, that their plea for forgiveness is because they're afraid of consequences. They think that now he's going to exact some kind of revenge on them. And so it's a fear of consequences that is producing this plea for forgiveness that they, they come to with. Right? And so, instead of responding in judgment and anger to his brother's fear and their lies and their overall terrible excuse for an apology for their heinous sin against him, his response in verses 19 through 20 is one that is full of compassion for them. He says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He says, I know that you meant evil for me, but I've already forgiven you. More than that, I have come to understand the sovereignty of God in such a way that I never could have known before. I have experienced his unmatched authority, his absolute control, his unrelenting presence. See, in spite of all the evil intent of his brother's actions, God used them for good. He used his brother's evil intentional actions to actually bring about their own salvation. And Joseph sees that. He sees how complete God's authority is. He sees how far-reaching his sovereignty is. He sees how God was using his brother's own sin and their own wickedness to bring about their own salvation. And so Joseph tells his brothers, listen, I'm not going to play God with you. I'm not going to pretend that I know how things should go or pretend that I can make things work out the way that they should. I'm not going to exercise judgment against you as though the final say belongs to me. He says, no, I'm going to leave that over to God. What happens is that when Joseph entrusts that to God, it frees him up to offer compassion and love and forgiveness instead of judgment and anger and death for his brothers. One commentator writes it this way, he says, it's one thing to recognize the sovereignty of God, it's another thing to keep oneself and one's role in proper perspective. For Joseph not only has a firm picture of who God is, he has an equally important understanding of who he himself is not. See, but it's not just Joseph's words that show his compassion for his brothers, it's his tone as well. I don't know about you, if, if I was in Joseph's situation and my brothers who had sold me into slavery sent me a message, right? They couldn't even come to my face. They sent me this message which I know has messed up motives and, and wrong intentions and lies, right? Like, my response would not have been compassion. Like, my response would have been, you have got to be kidding me, right? After all of this, right? 
This is how we're still doing things. After all of this, after everything that's happened, and yet Joseph's response is altogether different. At the end of verse 21, he says it this way. It says, Joseph spoke kindly to them, and he reassured them. He's not angry at their crap motivations and their lack of faith and their offensive excuse for an apology. He is full of compassion for them. He's gentle with them. I can imagine him with tears in his eyes lifting his brothers off the floor. You're not my slaves. You're my brothers. I love you. You are forgiven. Be free from your guilt. You have nothing to fear. I will take care of you now just as I did these past 17 years. So that leads us to the last way that we see Joseph's transformation by God in the story. So that Joseph, he chooses provision instead of restitution. See, verse 21 ends, the passage with Joseph repeating. He says, don't be afraid. By the way, that's not the fifth time in the story that he's told his brothers that. He goes on, he says, I will provide for you and your children. See, instead of taking vengeance, instead of getting even, instead of restitution, Joseph, he offers his brothers this repeated grace and provision. He promises not just to take care of them, but to take care of their descendants as well. And what he's doing is he's telling them, listen, guys, my forgiveness for you, it extends past our father's death. It extends past even your own death. It extends to your children. Like, you are completely forgiven. And Joseph never gets even with his brothers. He never demands that they make up for their mistakes. He never demands an apology from them. Instead, he freely forgives and lavishly blesses them. In chapters 45 through 50 of Genesis, if you read the story, you find is that God, all that God has given Joseph as a leader in Egypt, he shares with his brother land and property and resources. He gives them the best of everything. He doesn't hold anything back from them. See, and there's this incredible picture of a transformed Joseph in the story. And that cocky kid we met back in Genesis 37 who tattled on his brother and used his favoritism, for his, his favoritism with his dad for his own advantage, he looks nothing like the man who's weeping for his brothers here at the end, does he? He looks nothing like the brother who's pulling his brothers off the floor, reminding them of their forgiveness and of his love. You see, because in the trials of Joseph's life, he met the God of the universe. And it changed him. You see, it's so easy for us to read the story of Joseph and just to think, wow, like that's such an inspiring story. Wow, like... Man, Joseph chooses forgiveness instead of bitterness, and he chooses compassion instead of judgment, and he chooses provision instead of restitution. Like, wow, what a compelling story that is. That's so beautiful. I should really try to be more like him. He's a really good example to follow. And if you read the story that way, the only thing the story is is a stone around your neck that just drowns you. Because the reality is that you and I are a lot less like Joseph than we are like him. I don't know about you, when I read the story of Joseph, I don't think, wow, like what a great guy. Like what an inspirational story. Like what I think is you put me in his place and the story doesn't end the same. And those idiot brothers send me that stupid message and I exact revenge on them. Even now I get angry at those stupid brothers. 
after everything, they still can't even offer a real apology. And yet Joseph, his heart is full of compassion for them. See, the more I've wrestled with the passage, the more God's graciously been showing me that it's not Joseph in the story you and I are meant to align ourselves with. It's the stupid brothers. See, because just like his brothers, our motivations are often self-serving and flawed and sometimes even full of evil intent. And just like his brothers, we doubt we are forgiven all the time and we live under this burden of guilt of our sin and fear of God instead of the freedom and the blessing that God wants us to have. And just like his brothers, we often relate to God like slaves instead of family. And just like his brothers, we need someone to rescue us and to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And so just like the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis 50 is good news for his brothers, his story can be good news for you and I because Joseph's not the end of the story. He is a flawed and imperfect man who points us towards something better. See, he leaves us longing not just for an example of one who would show us forgiveness and compassion and, and restoration, but instead who would do it for us, to us. He leaves us longing for a God who might show us forgiveness instead of bitterness, for a God who might show us compassion instead of judgment, one who might provide for us instead of demand restitution. You see, Joseph is not the end of the story. He points us to Jesus. When you look at Joseph's words and his actions in these verses, right, they're not just profound, they are incredible. Like the level of forgiveness and grace and compassion he has for his brothers is just incredible. And yet Jesus' words and his actions towards us, they make Joseph's actions look really dim. See, and you and I, we need to hear this. Because the reality is that until you see yourself as the recipient of what Jesus has done, until you see him as the true and better Joseph who's offered you forgiveness instead of bitterness, who's offered you compassion instead of judgment, who's offered you provision instead of restitution, you will never have the, like, you'll never have the kind of melted heart that actually empowers you to do that for others. It's only when you see him doing that for you that you'll be able to live the life that Joseph shows us, God calls us to. When you see that Jesus is the king who chose forgiveness instead of bitterness towards us, when we should have loved him, instead rejected him, he chose, instead of choosing bitterness, he chooses forgiveness and he runs after us and he dies for us knowing that his forgiveness will be treated poorly and knowing that it won't be believed and knowing that it will be, not be used rightly and his forgiveness, even though it wasn't cheap and it, was, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't inexpensive, Jesus looks at our rebellion and our rejection of him and he calls us in the midst of our sin and he says that we're worth dying for. And he pays the price that our forgiveness would cost and he trades his life for ours. And, and so his forgiveness that we receive is full and complete. It's, there's no grudges he has left. There's no little bits that we need to make up for still. See, but like Joseph's brothers, it's a forgiveness you actually have to receive. See, his brothers were forgiven, but they hadn't received it yet. And that's the reality for some of you. 
Some of you are here this morning, and, and like Joseph's brothers, maybe you believe that you have done something so bad that God could never forgive you. Joseph's brothers probably felt that way. In fact, they, they almost murdered their brother. Instead, they sold him into slavery, into life in a foreign country. And maybe like them, you feel overwhelmed by the sense of guilt, and you live with a sense of fear of what, what God thinks about what you've done. And just like Joseph's brothers needed him to tell them again, you need God to speak gently to you, to remind you that he knows the evilness of your deeds. And yet he has still chosen to forgive and to love you. You need God to speak to your heart. You need him to tell you, I see your sin and I choose to forgive you anyways. See, on the cross, when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's not just addressing the sin of the religious leaders who stuck him there. He's speaking to you and to me. And there's this invitation that we might receive the forgiveness he offers. It's a forgiveness we don't deserve. Just like the forgiveness Joseph offers his brothers was not one that they deserved. And yet Jesus and Joseph, they offer it to us freely. Or maybe this morning you've trusted in Jesus' forgiveness and you, are, you do believe that you're loved by him, but when you sin, you feel this need to beat yourself up a little bit more and to really make sure that you've kind of made up for the wrong that you've done. You need to kind of keep paying for it in some way, shape, or form. Maybe that's what the brothers felt as well. And I just, in love for you, I need you to hear this. When we say that we need to keep adding to Jesus' suffering, we need to keep paying that kind of debt. What we're doing is we're spitting in his face, and we're telling him that what he endured was somehow not enough. And even now, as I say that, maybe you're feeling convicted or foolish or even guilty and again, you need God by his spirit to graciously pick you up off the floor and say to you again, you aren't my slave. You're my adopted son or daughter. You need his gentle voice of his spirit to speak kindly to you and to reassure you of his love for you, of his unrelenting forgiveness of you, He's not looking down on you thinking, just like, how could this person not get it yet? No, we see like Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he weeps over you. And he longs to hold you close, to remind you that you're forgiven, to remind you in Joseph's story of all that he's done for you and how fully forgiven you are. And yet even more, See, the gospel reminds us that God doesn't just choose forgiveness instead of bitterness for us. He doesn't just choose compassion instead of judgment. See, this gospel is the proclamation that he chooses provision instead of restitution. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. See, the blessings of life in the king's kingdom are yours. They are both yours now and increasing forever if you have put your trust in him. See, the good news of the gospel says that it's God's provision for us that leads us to give ourselves back to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way, that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
See, the good news of the gospel is not that you need to pay God back for all the pain you have caused him, that you need to apologize enough for your evil intentions and for your mutinous rebellion. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all for you and that he did it joyfully because he loves you and that he did it completely so that you could love him back. And so you're free now to give yourself back to him in worship, the one who gave himself for you. See, and it's all that Jesus has done for us that we remember every week when we take communion together, remembering and we're celebrating all that he's done for us, remembering that on the cross Jesus chooses forgiveness instead of bitterness for us, that on the cross he chooses, he chooses uh, compassion instead of judgment, and on the cross he chooses provision instead of restoration. And so every week when we remember the, in communion, we're remembering the gospel together and reminding ourselves about who he is and all that he's done for us so that we might be free of guilt and shame and instead of full of love for the ones who's forgiven us. And so... Communion, it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. It doesn't change the way he sees you. Faith in the person and the work of Jesus is the one thing that does it. And so if you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus to be your savior, to be your forgiver, to be your king, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Dip the bread in the juice. Let it be a reminder of his body and blood which were broken and shed for you so that you might receive a forgiveness you don't deserve. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, and if trusting him to be your forgiver and your leader is something you're ready for yet, then I just want you to know if that's where you're at this morning, you are absolutely welcome here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion, because God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts him to be your complete forgiver, and one that gladly surrenders to him as your king and leader. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. And so as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. How is the gospel, how might the person and the work of Jesus both be convicting you and empowering you to forgive instead of harbor bitterness? See, it's only when you see that he's forgiven you that you're going to be able to be free from bitterness for others. Some of you are here this morning and you are stuck in bitterness. Like it has this death grip on your heart. And the only way out of that is if you might see that Jesus chooses forgiveness instead of bitterness for you. When you see the cost he paid so that he might forgive you, then like the cost it might cost to offer forgiveness to others becomes like imminently payable. How does Jesus' forgiveness of you enable you to forgive and truly seek the good of those who have, even who have hurt you, not demanding or requiring apologies, but able to bless no matter the response? Again, that doesn't mean, forgive, that doesn't mean forgetting the ways you've been sinned or ignoring its consequences but it does mean allowing your heart to be free from bitterness, 
How might the gospel empower that? How might the gospel also be both convicting you and empowering you to choose compassion instead of judgment for those around you, with your spouse, with your kids, with the people at work that drive you insane? How might the gospel give you compassion even for those who have, who have done evil against you? Lastly, how might the gospel both be convicting and empowering you to choose provision instead of restitution? See, Jesus did not demand you pay for your sins. He did it for you. And when you receive his provision, it frees you to be able to bless and provide for others so that even in the self-centered and unapologetic motivations of others, you're able to choose forgiveness and blessing instead of restitution. You see, what Joseph did for his brothers was incredibly beautiful. See, but what Jesus did for us, it makes Joseph's forgiveness look dim and pale. And if we might see him as the true and better Joseph, the one whose forgiveness outshines Joseph's own, the one whose compassion dwarfs Joseph's compassion, and the one whose joy and whose, whose love and whose provision for his brothers outshines Joseph by 10,000-fold. That's when you'll have the power to live as Joseph did. It's only when you see Jesus doing that for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray this morning as we come to Joseph's story, we are so thankful for the way it reveals not just that he endured some hard things and learned some lessons, but in the midst of all the challenges in life that you were sovereignly leading and guiding him so that he might know you and be transformed by you. And so Jesus, we come to you this morning in the same place Joseph did, needing the knowledge of your son Jesus to transform our lives. For we can never be the kind of people that choose, that choose the things Joseph chose without you, Jesus. And so help us to see the beauty of the gospel and its good news. Help the good news of your forgiveness and your compassion and your provision for us to be good news that frees us from guilt and shame and sin in our own lives and that frees us from bitterness and judgment and demanding restitution in our relationships with others. Might the gospel be good news. That transforms us as we see you on every page. Amen.